Hello and welcome to Foreign Correspondence, a podcast about journalists. I'm Jake Spring. This is our first episode, so a few words about why I'm making the podcast are probably in order. I'm currently a foreign correspondent in Brazil, and I've been a professional journalist for about a decade now. In that time, I've met many journalists who are generally a very charismatic bunch with interesting stories to tell. Also, I find that most people outside of journalism don't understand too much about how the news gets made, beyond the somewhat simplified version shown in the movies. Sure, there are podcasts like The Long Form that look at journalism, but that is actually more about certain types of work that are exceptional, outliers that are brilliant, but let's face it, do not reflect most of what journalism is these days. We're setting out to instead build a picture of the day-to-day business of making the news using one in-depth interview with a reporter at a time. It will also explore how people become reporters and the path they take through the business. I know when I was first starting out, I went to China and met foreign journalists there, and the light bulb went off. Oh, this is a thing that people do, and here is how it's done. I could try to do this too. But before that, the concept of being a foreign correspondent was completely foreign to me. Having examples helps people to find their way. Also, I won't hide the personal aspect of this podcast. Living in Brazil, I'm far away from these friends and colleagues, and frankly, this gives me an excuse to talk to them and ask some things I've maybe always wanted to ask but never had the chance. Even if you're not interested in journalism per se, I hope if you're like me and interested in people, you'll enjoy this podcast. And now, on to our first guest. Today, we'll talk to Noman Merchant, a good friend of mine who works as a reporter for the Associated Press in Houston, Texas, covering immigration. I've known Noman since freshman year at Northwestern University when we met in the dining hall. We became great friends, although I will admit we kind of lost touch after college while he moved around the U.S. working different jobs. But we got to reconnect in 2016 when he moved to China to fill in for a co-worker on maternity leave for six months. I like this interview because it gives a chance to contrast being a national correspondent in the U.S. with being a foreign correspondent in a place like China, Africa, or Brazil. Just a quick note on the quality. Please keep in mind that this podcast is a work in progress. So, for example, in this podcast, around about 18 minutes, you might hear some clicks and some distortions in Noman's audio, but uh, if you stick with it after just a few minutes, it goes away. And the quality will change a bit from episode to episode as I learn more and adjust some of the tech I'm using. So again, here's Noman Merchant. Enjoy. So I guess to dive right into it, um, it's uh, about 4.30 here in Brasilia. It must be about, what, 2.30 by you, and, and you're in Houston, right? Right. Okay, cool. So uh, thanks for coming on the show, and um, uh, I guess just to talk a little bit about how we know each other. We've known each other for a long time, I, by my count, since 2005, so about 14 years we met in college at Northwestern our freshman years, like within the first month, I would say even. Does that sound about right to you? Same dorm and everything, yeah. Yeah, yeah, we met in uh, the Communications Residential College, but no, we met (laughs) across the street in the dining hall and, uh, you know, hit it off. And uh, But let's go back before then to, uh, where are you from? Beautiful Skokie, Illinois, just next door to Evanston in the Chicago area. And you born there all 18 years till college there? Um, Is that right? I mean, I was born in Chicago and went to elementary school in the city. And then my family moved to the suburb around the time I started high school. Gotcha. Gotcha. So, um, growing up in Chicago and Skokie, what was that like? You know, it was one of those places that you're aware of how cool it is, even as a kid, just 
all of the different opportunities, being able to ride the train, being able to meet people from different cultures. And for me, growing up of Pakistani heritage, to be able to go to restaurants on Devon Avenue there, which is the main South Asian district. I went to a magnet school that actually had a quota mandated diversity. So that was really great to get to know people from a very early age. And actually, there was like a journalist who came to speak at our school for a sixth grade career day. And the way he talked about it made journalism seem really cool. He had like this really simple formulation for what made a good journalist. His two rules were a journalist has to write well and tell stories well. And I thought that was simple enough. And from then, when I was in eighth grade, we had to do a career paper. And on a whim, I chose visiting the Chicago Tribune. And so I got to sit in the four o'clock editor's meeting, their daily meeting, where they decide what's on the front page the next day. And the next morning at home, I could see the stories that I had heard about the day before. And it was cool. And from then on, I went into high school worked for my school newspaper then, and I just always wanted to be a journalist, and Chicago is a great place to stir that passion. Yeah, wow. I mean, I knew you had always been interested early. I mean, you had seemed to be extremely focused on journalism to really know what you were doing, and um, whereas I had kind of, like, maybe just thought about it a little, got into it in high school, but but you started, I mean, sixth grade, I mean, is pretty early for it to be on your radar. That's pretty cool. Um, and you said you were, it was eighth grade already when you did the Tribune thing. So you must've been what, like 13? Yeah. Yeah. I was 13. And actually I would trace my interest in journalism to when I was a kid because my parents subscribed to the newspaper. Okay. I mean, we, we grew up, I wouldn't say poor, but we didn't have a ton of money. I mean, we lived in a small apartment and I didn't have my own bedroom until basically we moved to the suburbs in high school. But we always had the daily newspaper. I loved reading it. I loved talking about it. And I would say journalism is a very foundational thing for me. I mean, to be able to just be a part of the news and to, to read it, to write about it, to share it, all of that has been a big part of my life since as long as I can remember. Okay. And out of curiosity, what did your, what did or do your parents do? Did that have any influence on you? No, not directly. I mean, my dad owns a variety of small businesses and then my mom is a nurse. So both of them were really focused on the idea of education. Both of them came to this country from Pakistan and their whole idea for me growing up was that I would study and study and study. And <laughs> they were let down that I didn't go to law school and still sort of hold that out as a hope. But I think that ship has pretty much sailed. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. We, I mean, we know like Danny, he, I thought he was dead set on journalism and he's going to law school now, I think. I mean, there's, there's definitely an allure and I guess we can come back to this, but you cover these issues so closely. And at some point you think, Maybe I should just get into the game myself. And yeah, I I see why people, especially someone like Danny, who has so much passion, you know, I I, I was also surprised, but it seems to be working out for him. Yeah, no, he seems to be happy now that I don't keep in touch much, but I mean, uh, social media and whatever. It's Instagram stories, yeah. <laughs> so for for you, you said your parents' education was always important. I, I had always wondered, you you always struck me as the kind of guy that, you know, I was always kind of impressed, didn't really understand how you did it, but you were the kind of guy who 
you know, did the student newspaper, was in Medill, the journalism school at Northwestern, and you always, like, were so on top of your internship game, and you had a level of increasingly impressive internships, and you were so on top of it where I was kind of, like, nowhere. I wasn't majoring in it. Most places won't look at me for internships, things like that. And I was wondering, I don't know, I always kind of assumed there was some sort of parental pressure sort of thing, also because of who I was dating. And a, a lot of people, not, you know, just Pakistani, but all over Asia, there's this stereotype of, uh, you know, parents put a lot of pressure on their kids. And I felt like a lot of the, those people I knew uh, worked extra hard and had to show they were extra on top of their shit for their parents to basically be like, oh, okay, you, you cannot be doctor, lawyer, whatever, but we'll, okay, you're doing so well in school, we don't care. I mean, is it that situation or is that just kind of a stereotype? I think it's pretty close to it. I think some of it was cultural, but I also, I remember very clearly getting into Northwestern and wanting to do journalism. And my parents were very dubious of the whole idea. Like to them, they had worked so hard to provide opportunities for me to make sure that I had the time and space in high school to do extracurriculars and study and not work a part-time job because they knew I needed the time for homework. And so I got into this university and it's supposed to be this gateway to great things. And I say... I want to be a journalist. And I think they were dubious of the whole idea. They knew it was going to cost a lot of money to go there, even with the financial aid that we were getting. And they didn't want to spend good money after bad. And so for me, I... I knew that it was going to be difficult and competitive from day one. I knew that I wanted to go into journalism and it was going to be very difficult. And I knew I had to work very hard to make sure not to screw up. I mean, I was... It was fear, I think, that was driving a lot of like just making sure I had internships and making sure I was the best. I don't I don't remember. Maybe I'm sugarcoating in my own head, but I don't remember trying to show off to other classmates like I know more about journalism than you. I never felt like that drove me. For me, it was when I graduate, Mm -hmm. I need to be in journalism in a place where my parents can't just say, man, you screwed up. Like I didn't. The fear of my parents literal basement was something that. I think still drove me, still drives me to this day. Like, (laughs) I don't want to fail. And I think that's been good and bad in my life. I think that fear of failure. But in college, it definitely motivated me to make sure I had internships and got positions at the school newspaper, got good grades, made sure professors knew who I was. And overall, it had a positive effect on like my motivation in college, for sure. Sure, sure. And I think, I mean, I think it was especially important when like, I mean, things were never that rosy in journalism, but I remember like I went abroad in junior year and I came, and the bottom fell out. Yeah, I came back and the economy was just like destroyed. And it was like only the like, I don't know, 1% of people I felt like were able to get jobs in journalism as a result. Maybe that's an exaggeration, but I mean, for example, you, you, so you go to Medill, the journalism school. How many people in your graduating class do you think are journalists today? And what, what are most of them doing, do you think? Well, you and I are there. Um, I would say if I sat down and counted, there's probably 15 to 20 people I could think of who stayed in journalism. Mm-hmm. But it may not be that high. And this is out of a class of, what, 100, 150? How many people are in a class at Medill? There were 150 people in the Medill graduating class, and then maybe there were a few others like yourself who weren't officially in Medill but were in sort of the journalism swamp. <laughs> but, I mean, it was it was 
counting like the few classes after us who also graduated when the economy was really down, but it was starting to come back up. I think there were a bunch of people who got good internships and opportunities right out of college and were able to capitalize on that. But I think where it really hurt was if, I mean, aside from the economy, you and I both know that the pathways to like starting out at a small newspaper or small TV station and and climb your way up, those pathways have not disappeared, but they've really narrowed. And so I think it was always inevitable that a lot of people were going to end up finding something else to do. But to answer your question, I don't think there were very many people that ended up in journalism. Yeah, yeah. And I would say, I mean, I was almost lucky how bad the economy was and how, like, because I, I didn't have these internships. I didn't have this. I didn't have that. And um, so, but I, so I would apply for things outside of journalism. And I actually feel I was very lucky that I never got that job that would have supported me, but would have been something I didn't want to do. I'm kind of lucky I struck out until I found for, you know, nine months or however long until you actually helped me find my first journalism job. I don't know if you remember. Over you were, in Myrtle Beach. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think you're one of the few that made that work, right? I mean, you went, you started at a small newspaper, but I think you also wittingly or unwittingly identified one of the ways that you can make it in journalism in 2019, which is you have to have a specialized skill that you do really well that allows you to stand out from a very big crowd. And in your case, it was Chinese and not just the language, but having that knowledge of the culture and the willingness to to go to China for how many years were you there? Five, six years? Yeah, six. Like, yeah. I mean, that's, I think in this day and age, it's it's tough to, to stay in journalism without some sort of specialized skill that you can point to. And I think I think just to like work your way up as like somebody who's a jack of all trades, it's, it's tougher and tougher to do. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I always tell people, so yeah, you helped me get that job in Myrtle Beach through just some, uh, you know, people we knew. That was, I mean, three people we knew went through that job. It was kind of a... I mean, people weren't staying there long, but I I think it's also because people would show up, you know, you put in your year and you kind of get a lay of the land and this was a McClatchy newspaper and okay, I work here for three years. Maybe I get a job in, I don't know, uh, the capital of South Carolina. Then maybe I get a job after three or four or five years in Charlotte, North Carolina. And okay, that's a huge step up. And you're kind of like looking down this picture of like, it's going to be 15, 20 years before I get to a big city. And I don't know for like, I just kind of looked at that and I was like, I gotta somehow jump the queue. I gotta go to China. So, um, yeah, yeah. So, uh, I guess the, the, I don't want to dwell too much on early stuff, but it'd be good to talk about a little bit about the daily Northwestern since we both work there. Yeah. And I mean, I kind of credit you also with keeping me involved in the paper. Um, can you just talk a little bit about what working there was like for you, what it meant to you? I don't know if I should admit this on a podcast that others might hear, but I think I've, I had more passion for the work at the daily than I've had ever since. I think it was more personal to me. Mm -hmm. And it was something that it was the first time I worked for any publication that was read on the Internet or just like had influence. Right. And my whole life was about that newspaper. Like classes were the thing that I did to just like get by. And then I would go to the daily at like three o'clock and stay till 2 a.m. And then the next morning, answer emails, get the story started, then go to class, then go back to the daily. But it was great. I mean, just it was the first time I remember feeling like I could call someone in power and expect them to answer to me. And then 
their answers would be published in the paper. And it was great. Like we were just 18 to 22 year olds who enjoyed the influence that we had and hanging out at the paper, getting together after hours. And we, um, we had a great time. I feel like you and I, our friendship grew because of the time we spent there just like dealing with the day-to-day issues of columns not coming in on time or someone said this or I feel like managing letters to the editor was an issue for us because a lot of times we'd have to like find a way to fill that space (laughs) but uh yeah it was just it was also the first time I had to learn how to like work with people and not this might be too insular but sometimes I'll just like I'll think of something that happened at the paper and I'll go back and I'll read my emails and think man I was kind of insufferable I like (laughs) I needed to like learn how to talk to people and how to lead and manage and engage and not just dictate. And it was, it was like an experience that I'm still, I'm as proud of that experience as I am of just about anything really. Cause it was, it was great. And I made lifelong connections there. So. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I would definitely say the people who were the most, you look at those people who are journalists today and I feel like most of them were working at the daily or working at some place outside of just school. And that was a huge indicator of whether they'd stick it out, whether they were, you know, that passionate about it. Um, and you were involved through all four years, all, all the time. You ended up as managing editor for two quarters. Was yeah, I was managing editor for two quarters. I actually wasn't very involved senior year. I only was managing editor through the fall quarter. Um, but freshman, sophomore, junior year, pretty much, if I was on campus, I was working for the Daily. Yeah, yeah. And I would agree, like, yeah, just seeing your name in print, seeing, like, you know, the, the student body is kind of an active readership, seeing that your stuff can have impact. And I don't know, I feel like also, like, just, yeah, some of the older people on staff kind of encouraging you to, to stay in it. And, yeah, just getting a paycheck, even if it was small, and being able to think, you know, this is this is how it works. This is, you know, maybe on a small scale, but... I just remember the office of the Daily is on the third floor of the student center, and it shares a floor with so many different student groups and dance marathon, and occasionally you'd get some student leaders stomping into the office to complain about some article, and you'd have to manage them. It would be, like, the biggest issue, right? That whole day we would spend arguing about it, and that was, like, the first time I remember dealing with feedback, you know? It was, uh, it was, it was fun. I look back on it now fondly. You know, actually, the student government president who we endorsed our senior year, did you know Neil Sales Griffin ran for mayor of Chicago? Yeah, I thought I'd heard that. He was one of the youngest candidates or something. He was running this, like, shadow campaign where he didn't show up to any candidate forums or, like, do any campaign events and, like... I think he must have gotten like 500 votes. It was something, I don't want to make fun of him on this podcast, but it, it didn't go too well, it seems like. So, so I, I mean, think he might have gotten more votes for ASG, for Associated Student Government, than he got for Mayor of Chicago. <laughs> I, I don't, I, I was always on City Desk, I think. I'm not sure if I did. Oh, that, that was Maybe. a big rivalry. I don't know. I don't know if you want to spend the whole time talking about campus versus city, but. <laughs> Yeah, and I mean, you you pulled me onto the city desk. Yeah. I, like I worked for I probably Jordan Weissman on it, but then you, you kind of kept me involved by getting me to be an assistant editor, and I wasn't particularly good. I would always roll out of bed, pull my laptop into my bed first, look up ideas, show up to the meeting fifteen minutes late, and then like you kept me in it at least. And that I mean, and then eventually you pulled me in as the editorial. Uh, page editor or whatever it's called. But I'll, I'll I tell you, that was from, you from that from 
that city desk when I was city editor as a sophomore. I remember at a party telling Danny Yadrin that I had chosen him to be a city council reporter, and I remember him being so happy. And he went on to like cover cybersecurity for the Wall Street Journal. His coworker or his co-colleague on, on I don't think co-colleague's a word, his colleague on the city desk was Megan Kripo, now now covering cops for the Chicago Tribune and is breaking a ton of stories on the Jesse Smollett uh, attack, fake attack thing. So she's like all over the internet now. Kirsten McGuire covered uh, education for the Miami Herald. I mean, you went on to such great things. Annie Martin was at the Orlando Sentinel. So there were a lot of, there were a lot of journalists that came out of that. So this is a good trip down memory lane because yeah, we did end up producing a lot of journalists from that whole group. Yeah, I definitely do remember when Kerpo and Yadrin were announced as being the two, the, covering those two beats and them like beaming and like they were like, you know. They were made men at the Daily, yeah. The, the bright future of the Daily Northwestern. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so you you come out of college, you'd been on the straight and narrow, you have all the internships, you have the big credit at the Daily Northwestern, you graduate from probably the top journalism school in the country. What happens then when you graduate? Yeah, for a while I had this like, this, you called it the straight and narrow, right? Two days after graduation, mm-hmm. I started an internship with the Associated Press in Minneapolis. I did that for a summer covering a lot of different things. Then I went to the Wall Street Journal in Washington where I covered politics. Wow, I forgot these steps. Wow. Then I got a uh, two-year internship offer at Newsday, which uh, is a newspaper out on Long Island, New York. And it was like really nicely set up. I was going to do Newsday, then maybe move to a New York paper in the city. Then who knows, right? And I got to Newsday and it ended up being a train wreck because the stories were 300 to 350 words, never any longer or very rarely any longer. I would try and do substantive stories and get pulled off to cover like lottery winners and animals and blue lobsters (laughs) found in a fish tank in Farmingdale, which is a suburb of New York. And I, I broke a couple of good stories, but I was very young. I didn't know how to cover a budget. I didn't know how to cover city council and I wasn't really getting much guidance and I felt really lost. And I would I would admit that I was very arrogant then and I expected things to go a certain way based on just my limited understanding of... I guess it's like when you're on this pathway in school, they tell you what's next, right? You get an A in this honors class and then you move to this class and then you move to that school right. and you get that degree. And I just hadn't figured out for myself how to like shape a career path. So I'd been at Newsday about 10 months when the AP actually made me an offer to be a temp, uh, roving what they call the central region, which is basically the central time zone of the US from Canada to Mexico. And I thought Mm -hmm. this could be like my lifeboat out. And I ended up taking it. And one week I was in suburban New York and literally the next week I was in Sioux Falls, South Dakota because they needed a temp there. And they had not told me that was the first place they were going to send me, but that's where I was. I was I was in South Dakota at the Holiday Inn. Wow, the Holiday Inn. Yeah, I just for some reason remember that. But I was in South Dakota, then I was in Arkansas, and then I got a permanent job in Dallas covering law enforcement for the AP. And I've been with the AP ever since, and it's been an up and down ride, but I've had a lot of different opportunities, and right, it's been good right. overall. So uh, a question I tend to ask everybody is if they... Was there ever a point when you thought you weren't going to make it as a journalist? Yes. I, it's weird because it involves 
the first major project I did for the AP, which was a year-long investigation of sexual assault and sex abuse Mm -hmm. committed by police officers. And it was like my first really, really big success where we produced this exclusive look at how many police officers over a six-year period had committed sexual assault. We identified about a thousand cases. Wow. And it was the first time someone had really tried to dig into beyond just one or two cases, how systemic the issue might be and how many problems there are in identifying problem officers, getting them off the force, preventing smaller police departments from hiring officers fired by larger police departments. And it was this really good project, but it broke me. I mean, it was so stressful. And I felt, you know, there were so many, many days during that project where I felt like I can't do this. This isn't for me. And just because the amount of work it was and the the subject matter, the amount of the subject matter was troubling, but I knew it was important. But the work was like really overwhelming. And I didn't really get as much support as in retrospect I should have had and I I kind of felt like I wasn't I wasn't good enough that I couldn't manage things and after that project I was really aimless for a while which now I know like when you deliver a year-long project it's going to take a month or two to like not to stop working but you need to catch your breath and I really felt like I wasn't good enough to continue in journalism and I think a lot of that was just anxiety and just feeling the mental strain but I think there are some times in in my career where, you know, you have the ups and downs and especially with the way the industry is, I do sometimes think like, I, I would say right now, I sometimes think about, is this the best long-term fit? Is there an industry I could move to that's a little more stable? But for now, at least I still get a lot of energy from doing the work and meeting people and investigating things and breaking stories. So I hold on to it. But yeah, I mean, you and I both know like this industry can be economically very unstable and it's tough to be in sometimes. Yeah. yeah. So that kind of, I guess, when you thought maybe you didn't have what it takes, was, were you still in um, South Dakota or were you already, was this? I was in Dallas then. Oh, already. I was in okay. Dallas then, yeah. And actually that was when I started thinking I need a change. And I started talking to some people and companies about different jobs. And I was pretty close to leaving the AP at that point. And a manager offered me... How long had you been there in Dallas, sorry? I'd been in Dallas for three and a half years. Okay. And, sorry, four and a half years. And at that point, a manager said, hey, we need someone in the Beijing bureau as a temp, and you don't need Chinese. You just need to go and write and learn and figure things out. And I said, what the heck? When am I going to go to China otherwise? When am I going to have this type of opportunity? And it was great because you and I reconnected. And it was also, from a journalistic standpoint, it was really affirming. So China actually was born out of that moment of doubt and real questions about my future. And it was strange, like the answer to figuring out whether you want to stay in journalism is to move to a foreign country you know very little about, but it worked out okay. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, it was great that we got to reconnect in China because yeah, it had been years at that point. I, I, before we move on to China, I just want to ask what, I mean, being from Chicago your whole life and Skokie and big cities, like how, how did you... How did you feel living in across the Midwest and then in, in Dallas, Texas? I mean, did you feel, I don't know, isolated or what was that whole experience like? 
Yeah, it was, it taught me that I could adapt a lot better than I Mm -hmm. thought I would. The one thing, the one thing I had going for me was that I had done a lot of internships, right? And so I had already lived in South Bend, Indiana. I'd lived in Hartford. I'd lived in a suburb of uh, St. Petersburg, Florida, out in Pasco County. Mm -hmm. And I knew that it was important to invest in the place, to try and do the local things, to make friends, to not be sort of cloistered up in my hotel room or my apartment. And so I had adaptability going for me and I always saw it as sort of an adventure. I would say actually Dallas was toughest because in all the other places where I lived, I always knew that Chicago was my home base and I didn't feel like, like I think I would have taken South Dakota very differently if I had been there with an indefinite end. But That was why Texas was the biggest adjustment, because it is very different from Illinois. And I don't think anyone in Chicago grows up thinking, man, I want to live in Texas one day. But I've I've grown to really embrace it. But that that was an adjustment because that it took me a long time to make friends and to sort of feel comfortable with a very different way of looking at politics, economics. And but there's good things here, too. So I feel like all of the temporary experiences helped me prepare for a life where I would unironically say, y'all love barbecue, that sort of thing. So it's been good. I was just going to say, I started saying y'all after living in Myrtle Beach for like <laughs> one year. Yeah, yeah, it's useful. Yeah. <laughs> I hate to say, I never thought I'd be admitting that, but yeah, here we are, right? So, so you had lived in all over the U.S., I mean, even if just for brief times. I mean, we're talking probably, what, eight, ten cities and but I imagine none of that prepared you quite for going to China. How did you find your time in China? You know, the first month I was there, I felt a little bit like I'd landed on Mars, <laughs> and I knew it would be different. And really, like you, you know, parts of Beijing, like the the part where our office building was, it could be in many ways like a major city anywhere. Like it's well organized and very modern looking, but. Right. At the same time, like we shouldn't get too carried away with this idea of, I mean, it is, it is a developing country in many ways. And obviously I didn't speak the language. Um, there was a lot more English on the streets than I expected. And one thing that immediately helped me fit in in Beijing is there are a ton of expats who get together, have parties, go to restaurants and bars that cater to expats. And so it wasn't like, I wasn't like sent to some village, right? right? And so it just took me a while to figure things out. And actually work was good because we used the same programs and the same laptops. And so I'd log in and it was just like being being back in Texas, just, you know, on different time zone. And so so it took a while. It took a while to adjust. And thankfully you were there and we were able to get together. And I was just impressed watching you order in Chinese. I mean, I knew you spoke Chinese, but like, I remember us just getting together and like going out afterward. And it was cool. It was like meeting, meeting you again and meeting some different people who like, not just expats, but people from China who had studied in the U.S. and right. were looking to make friends who were from the U.S. Like, it just took me a while to figure out that it was going to be okay. It took me probably about a month before I felt like, all right, I can make it for the remaining five. Right, right. And yeah, it was great to have you coming in. I mean, Beijing is the kind of place where people cycle through, you know, usually it's one, one direction thing. People I know leave. So it was great having you come in. Some some people, you know, you know, you just fall back right into it. And I feel like it was like that with us. Well, you know, didn't it feel like a little bit of college? Like you were there for longer. It was your home. But for me, it was kind of like like a grown up version of college where you'd see the same same 25 to 30 people out at Cape 
at KTV at karaoke <laughs> or like at bars and it was fun. Like I would stay out late and then that was fun. It was just getting to know different people. Um, it was, it was cool. Yeah. I mean, it was great walking around my area and just seeing like, you know, seeing people I know all over the place and, you know, whether you're out at night or just walking to the grocery store or whatever. And there, yeah. And because, um, China is so foreign for most people, like, you know, people I think are friendlier because of that, they kind of come together, you know, whereas you see a random stranger on the street in, in, you know, Dallas or in Wisconsin or whatever, and you're not necessarily going to go up and talk to them. I'd, uh, I'd get a lot of people, especially at tourist sites where I'd go visit by myself. Like a lot of people would want to take pictures with me. My last week at the uh, Temple of Heaven, there's like some photos still on my phone of me shaking hands like a politician with random Chinese people. It was cool. We we always had fun. We uh, we would meet a lot of just people who would try out their English. And people in China were almost without exception very very friendly. Yeah, I would say that a hundred percent. And then I I started learning Ninis, which was like I knew I was never going to use it professionally, but just to be able to feel a little bit of investment. And by the end, I could actually order like chopsticks in restaurants mm. and like point to menus and add quantities. And it was cool. You know what I never did though is I never I promised some friends that I would learn a song in Chinese to sing at KTV, and I never did that. So. I did fall short there, unfortunately. <laughs> oh, man. I, I always told myself the same thing, and I never really got along, around to it. I mean, I can belt out some Chinese choruses, but have I really learned a song? No. I mean, I'm, I'm not a great singer in the first place. I stick to, you know, Sweet Caroline and that. Oh, that's not true. There's some there's some videos that disprove that, <laughs> but we can leave that out. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, I'm sure it's out there. I'm sure it's out there. So being uh, reporting in China, I guess my big question is, what is I would say in the U.S. you're you're still a correspondent. You're like a, a national correspondent. You know, you're not in one of these big hubs. You're kind of in the middle of the country and you've got more territory to cover potentially because of that. I mean, how do you compare being a foreign correspondent versus being kind of like a correspondent in the U.S.? Yeah, I I would compare two roles in saying, broadly speaking, in both positions, you're trying to explain a place or an event or a thing that's foreign to most of your readers. And so in my current position, I'm writing a lot about the U.S.-Mexico border in Texas, which is a place that's foreign to many people in Texas, and especially people outside. Uh-huh. And I think my experience writing in broader strokes with an eye toward context experience that I got in China is helping me now. I do think sometimes writing for a foreign audience is, I I saw in China sometimes that you would, you would read some stories that seemed a little too granular for like the average American reader or the average foreign reader. But I think there's, I think one of the things I really admired about many of the people I met in China was that they managed to straddle both roles well, where I think in any foreign press corps, you've got people that sort of write to the press corps and hang out with people like diplomats and sort of the expat community. But I felt like, at least based from my 
outsider's perspective that a lot of what I read seemed really grounded in on-the-ground reporting, talking to actual Chinese people who wouldn't have otherwise interacted with uh, foreigners. And I think in both positions, it's important to talk to people who wouldn't otherwise have their voices heard and to try and find a way to contextualize that without going so broad that you lose what makes it valuable. I think it's important to be able to straddle both of those separate pools of thought. And that was something that was really good for me in China to to get experience in doing that. Right, right. So like, how, how was it for you getting out there doing doing interviews? Did you find it was way different just based on the language? Yeah, I was always out in China with a chaperone. I mean, just out of necessity, right? Like I could only go so far without speaking Chinese. Mm-hmm. Like I would go out with a photographer or videographer and I would ask questions through one of them, record the audio and then send the audio back to our bureau where some of the news assistants would translate it and prepare a transcript for me. Uh And in a way that freed me up to focus on ways that I could make myself valuable where I wasn't just a guy holding a microphone. So it actually, I think, improved my observation because not being able to listen to the conversation freed me from having to focus on the conversation beyond just asking questions. And so I felt like my stories were more visual and more observational, which is always a good thing. So I basically had to find ways to make myself useful. And I had to do better at preparing questions because I wouldn't be able to think of follow-ups based on what people were telling me. So yeah, I would just have like a list of questions. I'd translate them or I'd just have... uh, a photographer, videographer asked them, mm-hmm. kind of translating on the spot. And we made it work. I mean, was there stuff that was lost in translation? Absolutely. I think ideally, if you go to a country to cover the country, you should speak the country's language. But I think there's a lot that you can do, even if you don't have that ability. Right, right. And uh, that that's interesting that uh, you said it freed you up to observe more. I would say, like, when I'm doing an interview in Chinese or in Portuguese, like, my mind is, like, just racing all the time to, like, figure out what they're saying in a different language. Think of my next question. Like, I'm just holding so much in my brain that, yeah, I'm sure, you know, if something crazy went off around in the background, I might not even notice. Yeah, like, I, I do interviews in Spanish, right, which is a language that I've been studying off and on for most of my life. And mm-hmm. I get so stressed out sometimes interviewing people in Spanish and, and doing good interviews, but trying to make sure that I understand everything and ask questions that are grammatically correct that I have to remind myself, make sure to ask the basics, name, age, country, city. I I like lose basics because I'm so worried about the language. So I'm not saying that you don't need Chinese to cover China, but it it was freeing in a way. And I mean, I I can see, and I talked about this a little bit in another interview about how, you know, it can be important to have all sorts of reporters. It's important to have local reporters, but foreign reporters might have their own perspective and you know, kind of dropping somebody in like you who hasn't been there for years and years. Maybe you'll see things that are different than other people. Well, and as you know, Um, you know, there's like at the AP, there was a story in, I believe, the Columbia Journalism Review a few weeks back. Oh, yeah. That examined how the AP is hiring more local reporters. And a big reason for that push is the obvious one, which is financial. Right. But we had our executive editor, actually, she was talking sort of derisively about what she called the expat package, where Americans would go abroad and in addition to American salaries, they'd get benefits for international school and like a living allowance and all of that. I think the story came off as mostly negative toward the idea of an expat package. I think 
along with you that it's important to have a mix of reporters. I think you should pay them all fairly. But yeah, I think this idea that like you need Americans to cover China, I mean, you don't. But at the same time, to have an American perspective on China, like when I was in China, the experience I gained investigating police sexual misconduct in the U.S. gave me a lot of database and open records management skills that my boss Mm -hmm. at the time put to use working on a project about golden visa programs, which are, as you know, a huge deal in China. And I ended up... Those are those are visas in which basically you invest enough money to get a visa. Yeah, like $500,000 for a green card, that sort of thing. Right, okay. And there's like all these countries that are investing, that have these investment programs that rely almost exclusively on Chinese. So like... Those skills that I gained in the U.S. were really useful in, like, collecting records from, like, 10 or 15 different countries and putting them together into a database. So I'm not saying no one in China could have done a database, but I feel like my skills and my outlook on how open records work did help me there. So I think you should have a mix, and I think any good news organization relies on that so you get the best report. Right, right. Okay. So then six months and you were back to well not to dallas you you switched to houston yeah and um were you were you ready to go after six months uh yes and no because i felt like i was just getting to a place where i was learning a lot but i also you know was six months away from my girlfriend now my wife and that was really painful it was difficult um and also uh the election happened the november 2016 election happened while i was over there and donald trump got elected and regardless of how you feel about him that was an earthquake right and right. you want to go where the story is because even the last few months in china i was mostly writing what does china think of trump type stories and at some point you just want to go where the action is and right Yeah, so I came back, they offered me the job of covering immigration in Texas, which like I knew was going to be a huge deal because if you paid attention at all to Trump's campaign, while deport a lot of people, change policies in a really drastic way. And that's what we expected. And that's what's happened. So I came back and for like two years, I've been running just covering all the changes. So in your new job, I'm not that up in the geography of Texas, but you were in Dallas. Now you're in Houston. Now you're covering immigration. You're spending way more time on the border and that sort of thing. Yeah. Houston, Houston is further south and closer to the border. It's still about a five hour drive, but it's closer than Dallas was. It's also an extremely diverse and important city for immigration itself. And so there's plenty of stories to do from Houston that you may not necessarily do in Dallas. So yeah, from here I cover like the Rio Grande Valley, which is the southernmost part of Texas. And that's where more illegal border crossings happen than anywhere else on the border. Mm -hmm. And then... Texas also has the largest family detention spaces. It has the largest facilities for detaining immigrant minors. And it's also where a lot of the biggest incidents happen. And so Mm -hmm. there's just a ton of things that happen here that end up being covered by me. Cool. And uh, let's get into your current job. Can you walk me through what a typical day is like? Is it really trite to say there's no typical day? (laughs) Probably, right? (laughs) You're probably right. Yeah, I, I would say... A typical day for me is figuring out what the latest crisis is and how we have to respond to it or how we can drive news on it. And there are many days and weeks that are relatively quiet. And in those, I'll have two or three or four different projects going at once at different speeds or different time frames. And so I'm trying to keep those going. Uh-huh. 
But then just as in your job, something happens, you drop it and you run. And so just yesterday, one persistent source of crisis is at real Donald Trump, because he'll tweet something and it could be amusing off the news or it could be a policy shift, right? Uh-huh. So yesterday on Friday, March 29th, that was when the president tweeted, I'm going to be shutting down the southern border next week. And so by the time this podcast airs, we'll hear whether or not he shut down the southern border. But he said he would shut down the border if Mexico does not immediately stop all illegal immigration, which is something that's not feasibly possible, right? First <laughs> of all, they're not me- most of the people that are crossing are not Mexicans. Yeah. They're from Central America that cross through Mexico, usually with the assistance of criminal cartels that the Mexican government officially does not condone, though there's plenty of credible reports of corruption, but that's an aside. So he tweets that, and then I had to like write what the impact of a border closure would be and what you know what this means, trying to talk to people about what might happen, and that finishes, and then the autopsy results are released into the death of a girl who died in custody, in Border Patrol custody in December. That was released in the afternoon. So for 10 to 12 hours, I'm just running, writing these stories, and uh-huh. we're in the middle of a crisis now where well, I shouldn't say crisis because that specific word is up for debate, but we're in the middle of the surge of hundreds of families from Central America at a time almost on the hour or crossing the U.S.-Mexico border, and the Border Patrol doesn't have space to process them. Immigration and Customs Enforcement doesn't have space to detain them. Mm-hmm. And so they're releasing them almost as soon as they arrive, and more and more are arriving. And in many cases, these families are just being dropped at bus stations with no bus tickets, no food, no money, and no idea about how to go where they want to go in the U.S. And it's this... Oh, they let them into the U.S., huh? Yeah, because they have no space to detain them, and they uh, a lot of these families families are asylum seekers. And so because they're seeking asylum, they're entitled to a court process Mm -hmm. and that process can take months or years. And so these families are coming into the United States. Many of them are fleeing violence, poverty, really stories of cruelty that every time you talk to a family, you hear just these incredible stories of what they're escaping. It's tough. It's a tough situation all around. And it's also like a really difficult policy and national security question. And so I've been covering that. You know, and Mm -hmm. so all of that happens in one day. I mean, that's that's all just happening this week. And so it's it's a mix of different things that I have to try and contextualize and make sure is covered in a way that's both like fair to all sides, drives at the human angle, drives at the policy angle from the government side, from non-governmental organizations. And then also like find a way for it to break through, because I think there's so much coverage that I think people tune out of it sometimes. So it's basically in short, every day I'm trying to figure out it's like drinking from a fire hose and trying to decide what glass of water to serve to the public. And in two years, I've learned a lot about, I've covered stories that have been really heartbreaking and interesting and have gotten a ton of attention. And I've also just like, I don't know, I don't, I don't have like a, there isn't like a one typical day yet, you know, but I think that's a good thing, right? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I'm curious, for example, you, Trump tweets this about closing the border. You got to find out what it means. You've got to, you know, you got to write that news that day because it's a breaking news story. So did you jump in your car and go to the border? Did you work the phones? How, how, how exactly, how did you react to that? Yesterday I worked the phones uh, after Trump tweeted because a lot of that 
a lot of the potential impact I can do, you know, I, I frankly, I just know it because I've had to write about this issue before. If he ends up closing parts of the border, if he closes bridges or ports of entry that are the official crossing points, I'll probably be in a car next week if that happens to try and measure the impact. And frankly, mm-hmm. If that happens, we're not going to have to go to the border to measure impact. We'll have to go to a supermarket where there are no avocados or tomatoes or many of the other things that you know are grown in Mexico and imported on a daily basis. But I don't think it'll happen because cross-border trade is so important. But at the same time, like, it's the president, right? Like, if he makes that type of declaration, you have to take it seriously. And So it depends on the day. It depends on what actually happens and whether Trump's tweets, like, the weight we place on Trump's tweets is like a discussion for a whole another time but (laughs) at least yesterday i just did it by phone sure sure so maybe this is a good time to then jump into the the couple specific stories so what what's a story you've worked on in the past few years that um you're proud of and can you walk us through kind of start to finish how you went about it yeah last year i worked on a story that unspooled basically an ordinary raid by immigration and customs enforcement in which they arrested 25 people and Mm-hmm. It basically, the raid generated one press release from ICE and a couple of local stories. But we were interested in just to observe the impact of immigration enforcement. We wanted to unspool how a single raid took place and the impact it had on various families. And so I did about three months of reporting, talking to lawyers, families, advocates, law enforcement, and we spent a week Wait, just uh, just for background, who, so what, uh, it was 25 they just were immigrants, illegal immigrants, yeah. but normal people. Yeah, so... Not criminals, not... Um, well, so the press release pointed out the criminal histories of three or four of the people, but then it said we arrested 25. And I ended up spending a week in Kentucky sort of investigating what actually happened. And in many cases, ICE would show up to one workplace, look for one person. Then they talked to another person who spoke Spanish and said, hey, do you have papers? And in the case I'm thinking of, this gentleman who was asked, hey, do you have papers? He flinched a little bit. And the ICE agent who asked him that ended up arresting him. And just in, just by happenstance, this guy ended up getting arrested, charged federally, likely deported. And he had a wife and five kids in Kentucky mm. um, who were relying on his single income and no longer had it. Just things like that, you know, kids left with uncles and aunts. Some kids ended up getting sent back to Mexico or Central America, even though they were American born. Uh, Schools where, you know, teachers were trying to explain to classes why some of their classmates were crying. Some kids expressing thoughts of suicide because they were so depressed about what had happened. And I sort of built all this together into a narrative. What I thought was really important was We read about immigration enforcement, and I don't want to even be a bleeding heart about the whole thing. I think there are immigration laws, and, you know, I see all sides of of the immigration debate, and I officially have no opinion on it. But I think just to unspool how it actually happened and the rhetoric versus the reality, uh, the story ended up getting a lot of attention, and I think it was like a really good exercise in doing the type of work we should be doing, which is not just taking a government agency's word for something and trying to figure out, like, what does it mean to arrest 25 people? Like, what does that, what does that have down the line? Like, what, what positive benefits did that have to the community? 
um, if any. And so I was proud of that story and it, it took a lot of work. And it was one of many stories I did where I was able to kind of go behind the scenes of what government agencies say about immigration and actually tell you what immigration enforcement looks like. Sure. So it was it was a raid where 25 people were arrested and it was all in Kentucky? Yeah, it was in northern Kentucky across the Ohio River from Cincinnati. Okay. And so there were some like farming communities, there were some suburbs and it was cool. Like there were like pockets of immigrant communities within these broader communities, but like there was very little awareness. We had a, we had a really tough time getting any public officials to speak. Mm-hmm. We had to like camp out outside of a community meeting to get a couple of police chiefs on video talking about the operation. And they said they, they hadn't heard anything about it while it was happening. They found out after the fact. And it was interesting. I sort of operated in a unit by itself within this broader community. And a lot of people had, had various thoughts on it. Like some people said it was fine. Some people were troubled by it. But I don't know. It was it was a good way of exploring what happens in a community. Like So, so that part of Kentucky... Actually, if you ever order from Amazon or eBay, Uh there's a decent chance your product will go through a fulfillment center in northern Kentucky. Uh Amazon was in the process of building a major terminal at the local Cincinnati airport, which is in northern Kentucky. And there's a lot of big factories, and those factories are basically operated by immigrants. And... A lot of them are here illegally, like they use false papers. And so we visited one factory where the guy who ran it, this like long time, this lifelong Kentuckian, was telling us how he lost a third of his workforce in those first few months because there were three arrests at his factory and then others who were afraid of ICE coming back to that factory quit. Even people who he knew were green card holders because they just didn't want ICE looking at their papers and God forbid something would happen. Right. So he ended up, that factory ended up missing their deadlines by several hours for a long time until they could staff up again because of the raid. So it was interesting. We had a good experience with that. Huh. And did you, uh, how much legwork did you do before you showed up or did, to find, track down most of these people, did you have to show up and ask around to do it? It was 50-50. So when we went for a week, I had set up about eight or nine interviews uh-huh. because I'd been doing reporting over the phone for about two months, but things like the manager of the factory, we just had to like go to the factory and make nice and and talk to him a little bit. Actually, you know, I forgot about an angle for you. The factory was a subsidiary of a Chinese company and huh. he was the only he was the only American in the office. Everybody else was Chinese. So I rolled out a few phrases for people. Woshijija? <laughs> in northern Kentucky then. Yeah, yeah. I was yeah, trying to yeah, say yeah. I'm a journalist. <laughs> But, uh, yeah, yeah, what should you do? Yeah, yeah, so we, we had it, it was all a crossover. That's funny. Time is a flat circle, right? So, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, that and so how many reporters were working on it with you, and how many of these anecdotes make it into the final piece, or was it a series, or how? how I'll, I'll try to post a link when I when I put this up. Yeah, I'd appreciate that. We um, we ran one long story, and it was a photographer and videographer who came with me. And then we had the help of a few people, like some of our local Kentucky reporters helped out. I ended up doing the bulk of the reporting myself, though. 
Okay. And this might kind of feed into a question I kind of had, but the state of the media in the U.S. is that, you know, local media coverage has been eroding, but also for big organizations that try to cover the whole country, like the Associated Press, you maybe don't have as many correspondents as you used to. So I was just wondering how you think coverage of the U.S. has been affected by kind of this evolution over time. Like you're being sent from Texas to Northern Kentucky, which is very close. No, um, but I think what the AP has done is more and more reporters, while being based in various cities across the country and specializing in a specific beat. So we have, Mm -hmm. just off the top of my head, we have a reporter in Detroit who covers religion and he'll travel. Uh We have reporters in Montana and northern Michigan that cover the Interior Department, as well as anybody does in Washington. They break a ton of stories from their respective posts. So I think we've tried to leverage our like geographic Dispersedness. I don't even know if that's a word, but the way we're spread out, we try and use that to cover things nationally. But no, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. I think local coverage in many communities has taken a big hit. And we end up, as the AP, trying to fill in some of the gaps. But at the same time, because things are so dispersed, I mean, when I started, not even that long ago, we relied so heavily on local newspapers to give us an idea of, oh, this is a local story that could be written nationally. And mm-hmm. when you cut those roots out, it's tougher for us to find out about things. So it's different. I mean, we also get a lot of ideas off of social, but that in itself is an issue. But I think I think we're doing what we can. I think there's a lot fewer reporters and a lot more stories that go missed, unfortunately, but you do the best you can, right? I mean, it's just you and I are two people just trying to make sense of things. But I, I hope that there's some solution because I think outside of New York, D.C., L.A., San Francisco, there's a lot of stories in this country that deserve more attention. Right, right. And uh, yeah, that's interesting because actually, you know, that that does make me think of being a foreign correspondent because, you know, wake up in the morning, there are like four newspapers of records, some big websites and stuff like that. And you that's what you check first because the local media often has it before you or they get, you know, some granular story that can be helpful and your bigger story. And, you know, here in Brazil, at least the media is still pretty robust. It hasn't been quite as gutted as it has in the U.S. But, um, I mean, then you look at a place like China where there's, because there so much is state controlled, there just isn't robust local coverage. So you're kind of half looking on your own. Sure, you do pick up Xinhua articles and stuff like that. But, I mean, robust, like reading local newspapers is a slog. You're not going to get stories usually reading those in China um, since it's just so controlled. Like the Chengdu Youth Daily or something. I don't know. I'm just making things up. (laughs) I I would think I I visited Chengdu, right? And like I wanted to go see the pandas and I ate hot pot and wrecked my stomach for two days. But like I thought to myself, this is a city that's like, it's a a big city. And I wondered like if something happened in Chengdu and Xinhua decided not to cover it, who is going to tell us about it? Like, I, I don't know the answer to that. Who Who's responsible for that in a world where there isn't local coverage? Yeah, I mean, local papers, but they get censored. And like, yeah, sometimes things pop up briefly on Weibo or social media, but they're getting better and better at scrubbing those. So yeah, yeah. I mean, it's the whole thing with like, they say there's something like, you know, tens of thousands or more protests a year in China. Um, But how many make it in the news? Almost none. I mean, and I I can't speak to verifying those reports, but things like uh, China Labor Watch and things like that put out these reports with these astronomical figures about the number of incidents that happen 
happen. And, you know, you're lucky if you catch any. I mean, sometimes once I remember I got a call and it's rush over to this place because there's a protest. This ha- this happened a couple times. And most of the time it would be, you know, suppressed by the time I showed up. And you'd be lucky if you caught anything online. Only once did I, I capture one. And it was not about rights or anything. It was about people who had lost their money in like a bit of a, of a dodgy bank scheme, which is, you know, it's not against the government. So it's a little bit, you know, more loose. But yeah. It's it's pretty crazy. I got to go in like five or ten minutes, if that's okay. Sure. Let's skip to the uh, the what I kind of call the lightning round. Yeah. So the, you don't have to dwell on these questions too long. If you want to expand on them, great. If you don't, um, that's fine. They're not supposed to be as involved as these other ones. So do you think you're ready? Let's do it. Okay. So what is usually the first thing you check when you wake up in the morning? You get out your phone. You get out your computer. What do you check? Twitter. I hate to admit it. <laughs> I try not to tweet very much, but yeah, I'm a slave to it, just like many other journalists. And so Twitter is pretty important to you. Do you have like a, you check it on your phone or do you have like a huge tweet deck set up or how, how do you go about I'm it? I'm uh, old school, just use the Twitter app on my phone. Okay. And um, beyond Twitter, like what is a must read publication that you'll look at almost every day? Uh, the Associated Press, right? No. Um <laughs> the New York Times. I read the Times very closely and take great pride anytime I can do a story at or before the Times, um, which is tough because they're very competitive on immigration. They they set the agenda. But yeah, I would say uh, of all the many great publications out there, you got to go with the gray lady, right? Right, right. Um, let, moving on, what is a publication you read or listen to or watch f- purely for fun? I read The Athletic. That's the uh, the relatively new startup that uh, has hired a lot of sports journalists in like 20 different cities. And they have big names and new names and they cover the Chicago Cubs and Bulls and Bears really well, as well as uh, college football and basketball. They're a really great site. They're subscriber only. Uh, so let me put in a plug for them because I think they're doing really great work. And I always want to see journalists getting paid for the work they do on the internet. So The Athletic. The Athletic. I'll have to check it out. I've never even heard of it. Yeah, it's great. They do really great work. Um, let's see. What's the best article or other piece of media you've say, you'd say you've read recently not in the associated press <laughs> could be a podcast could be anything i would say best bit of media i read so much media it just sort of blends together let me think about that one you want to go to the next one sure i'll come back at the end let's see so these are a series of yes or no questions take them as you will glenn greenwald yes or no I'm always here for the iconoclasts, so yes. Okay, cool. Um, And as I've said in my previous interview, I'm looking forward to the running count of Glenn Greenwald, yes or no's. You know, 50 yeses versus 40. I mean, he's in in your neck of the woods, so you don't want to, like, piss him off, right? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) But, I don't know, maybe get his attention, maybe get him to come on eventually, you know, he'll be my white whale. (laughs) There you go. Um, Vice Media, yes or no? You know, they just had some layoffs. They laid off a good friend of mine, Nigel Duara, so I gotta go no. They do good work, but I was really bummed about those layoffs, so I'll go there. Sure, sure. 
WikiLeaks, yes or no? Whew, that's a politically charged question, right? I probably should pass on that one. Well, uh, yeah, I guess it depends how, how you take it. But uh, yeah, I mean, I guess if you're... I'm for disclosure, I'm not for crime. How about that? <laughs> sure, sure. I guess they've gotten more controversial over time. Yeah, yeah, that was safer about three years ago. Yeah. And uh, these next ones, I guess, just whether you consume them or not. TV news, yes or no? Hey, it drives the agenda, so I have to say yes, right? I guess. I don't know. Also pays the bills around here, so okay. yes. Radio news, yes or no? I love radio, yes. Uh, magazines? Yes, absolutely. Okay. Podcasts? I hope so, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, if you had to trade places with one journalist living or dead and you would have their career, who would it be? I would have loved to have been... You know, I just read Seymour Hersh's memoir and the way that he... Besides the the crazy stories that he told and continues to tell, to use the word iconoclast again, just to be the guy who didn't care about what other reporters thought of him, but was unafraid of asking unpopular questions and challenging the conventional wisdom. The guy was a badass and is a badass. And so off the top of my head, I'll go Cy Hirsch because he also worked for the AP for a long time. And <laughs> Had an up and down that. career there. Yeah. So, you know, I'm trying to be a good company man here. And so I'll go Cy Hirsch. What was his big book again? He wrote a big, he wrote several big books, but he just published a memoir last year. Um, the name of which I'm forgetting, but. Yeah, I've just looked. It's, it's one of those, I think it might be this one, just reporter, a memoir. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. I knew it was something. I knew the title was not as good as the book itself. So Sure, sure. Let's see. What is one thing you wish you could travel back and tell your younger self? A piece of advice or something like that. I would have actually done fewer internships if I could have and done more things outside of journalism. Like I still would have pursued journalism with the same way. And it's easy to say that now, like having had things work out to a certain degree anyway. But I think just things like the summer I spent being a camp counselor, the summer I spent making sandwiches at Jimmy John's, I learned a lot from just like not being a journalist and being around journalists and trying to impress journalists because most of this work that we do now does not involve interacting with journalists day to day. And I think I would have tried to live a little more and I try and live a little more now and put down the phone at seven o'clock more because I realize the experiences you have outside of work and deadlines, those are just as valuable. That's a little bit trite too, I admit, but I had a great time delivering sandwiches for Jimmy John's before starting college. I was uh, riding around in my old 95 Corolla and delivering sandwiches all over Skokie. So <laughs> I treasure that experience as much as I treasure many of the internships. So I would have tried to have more of those. Sure. And that, I mean, that has a certain freedom from stress that, I mean, you know, yeah, as a journalist, we're always, we always have things to worry about. <laughs> I mean, I chose a winter internship in Hartford, Connecticut over a spring study abroad for journalism in Johannesburg, South Africa, which gives you a sense of where my mind was when I was a junior in college. And I don't even like telling people that now because it's crazy to imagine. Yeah. Well, well, glad to hear you're taking a different approach now. Yeah. What's your favorite film, book, TV, or mo other media property about journalists? So like a meta thing, uh, like uh, The Newsroom or something like that. The Wire season five, which uh, many journalists hate the fifth season, but I thought, and it's like a little bit too allegorical about David Simon's views of how he experienced the Baltimore Sun. But I just, all, you know, the first name I thought of before I told you Seymour Hirsch was Gus, the city editor from The Wire. But then I didn't want to give you a fictional character. So, <laughs> you know, just the guy who tells stories and knows city officials and puts in an honest day's work. 
that's that's what I've always wanted to be. And uh, I don't know. I was I was inspired by that by that season. So I'll go with The Wire. Yeah, I think that that one got too much flack. I really liked it. And I mean, I think it was mostly over the guy, the one reporter, you know, being involved in this kind of made up serial killer and this idea that, you know, you can the press could just fabricate things, which honestly, I know there are a few cases of that. But I mean, I think journalists sometimes get offended by the idea that that could be somehow widespread. It absolutely could be widespread. Absolutely. But that's a subject for another time. <laughs> okay. And then uh, qualifications aside, if you couldn't be a journalist, what job would you do? I'd probably deliver papers if that's still a thing. I love the news. <laughs> yeah, I love the news. You know, I, I've thought about being a consultant, a lawyer. I don't know. Maybe maybe a small business like my dad. He, I just always admired the way he got to know customers and had a nickname for everybody. And he like, he believes in the grind. He works hard. He cares about it. And he's a proud man who supported his family with, you know, working in business. And so... I think there's a lot of honor in that and I wouldn't I wouldn't mind doing that at all but I'm happy what I do what I'm doing now. Yeah, good answer. I would say it's probably a little more viable than Paperboy. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> but that's still big business in like Florida and <laughs> places where there are old, older populations maybe. Okay. And then I guess just to return uh, any has any article a good piece of journalism you've read recently popped into your head? I'll tell you the Houston Chronicle, my local newspaper did a really great investigation into the Southern Baptist Convention and how certain churches had pastors who were like sex offenders who had pleaded guilty to sex crimes. And it was the Chronicle and their sister paper in Hearst, the San Antonio Express News. They did this nationwide investigation, put together a database and immediately caused the Southern Baptist Convention to like undertake a major review and respond to its members. And there's been a lot of impact from that series already. And I just love seeing Local newspapers do kick-ass work, and since it's my hometown newspaper, I can also shout it out. So I, I was just reading some of their stories this morning. They've they've done a really great job. I would highly recommend. I believe I believe the series is Betrayal or Denial of Faith. I want to say Betrayal of Faith, um, but if you look that up, the Southern Baptist stories in the Houston Chronicle. It's really well-sourced, transparent, and really detailed reporting. So I'll go with that. Cool. Yeah. No, I'll see if I can dig up a link for that too and post it wherever I post things because I haven't posted anything yet, so I haven't worked this out quite yet. But um, I imagine maybe there's an area in the podcast descriptions. Okay, I think that's most of it. Is uh, Do you feel good about it? Anything we missed? No, this was fun. I enjoyed, uh, I enjoyed doing it. It was really great. So there you have it. That was our first episode with our guest, Noman Merchant. Thank you for listening to Foreign Correspondence. If you like the show, please subscribe to it in Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have time, give it a good rating and leave a positive review. You can find us on Twitter at at ForeignPod or use the hashtag hashtag ForeignPod to tweet about it. Or, you know, just like tell a friend of yours if you know any journalists, journalism students, or anyone you think might be interested. Our goal is to post episodes every two weeks on Sunday days. This one we had to put up a little early to get through the first-time approvals with Apple, 
but we're going to count it as May 19th. So the next one is set to go up on June 2nd. Please be sure to look for it then. Lastly, just some special thanks. First to my lovely wife, Bibiana, who encouraged me from the start and supported me every step of the way. She did the design for our logo and even helped with some of the editing among her many contributions. I'd also like to thank my friend Andrew Keefe, who helped me workshop the concept and the episodes. Thanks to Benedict Bernstein, who helped with the show's name and was an early listener, and to Bentley Farina for being a beta listener on an early episode. Our show's music is a track called Love Chances by Mackay Beats. I found that on freemusic.org, which is run by radio station WMFU. I'll post links for more information on the music, as well as some of the articles and other things I discussed with Noman, probably on our Twitter, as well as on our show page, foreignpod.podbean.com, and I may also be able to get it into the iTunes description, so maybe you can see it there. I think that's it. So once again, my name is Jake Spring, and this is Foreign Correspondence. Thanks for listening, and see you next time. Thank you.